Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 24th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before I begin tonight, I want to thank um, Martin and Julie for hosting us in Naples, Florida last week for um, seven or eight days. Julie, I'm sorry we missed your birthday and couldn't stay a couple more days. Maybe that would have been fun. Maybe next time. We were only in Naples for about a week, but we were out and around several times practically every day. I remarked on the number of Jews I thought were in Naples, Florida last week. The outskirts and the suburbs around Naples are, are um, not so bad at all. They're mostly mostly white, surprisingly mostly white. We saw some Haitians. That they're importing Haitians into um, some areas in Naples. Evidently, the Jews need better housekeepers. We saw some Hispanics, but surprisingly a lot less than I expected to see. We were um, out and around practically several times each day. I made it a point to wear nothing but Christagenia t-shirts for the entire trip. I got one positive remark from an old woman in a bar that we stopped at on Sunday, which I'll remark on again in a few moments. And, and she only gave me a thumbs up sign and said, I like your shirt. I um, didn't stop to talk to her. It was near the band, and, and it was um, it would have been pretty useless trying to talk. I got a few sneers. I got more than a few sneers and, and um, sour looks wearing these, these crosses and, and swastikas around Naples, Florida. I saw this girl on a pier downtown, and it was... Um, the first full day we were there, Tuesday morning, she must have been 10 or 11 years old. I was wading through the crowd on this pier, and, and this little girl, uh, it must have been her parents that she was with that passed me first. And this little girl looked up and saw me and looked me right in the chest, and she, this sneer came across her face. Her lip curled, and, and, and it had to be a reaction to that t-shirt I was wearing, I'm sure, and, and she just got this foul look on her face like you want to grab her by the throat and slap the hell out of her. That was my first thought. She was, um, she had really thick black glasses on, horn-rimmed glasses like the type nerds wear in school, and, and um, I looked back at her parents and I knew why she sneered right away. Her, her parents looked like they had come from, um, they were on vacation from Borough Park. We were in a, um, maybe Livingston, New Jersey. We were in a Barnes & Noble bookstore in, in Naples, and, and we decided to get a cup of coffee. And, and there was this Jew in a yarmulke in a business suit. I have his picture on the Christianity Forum. He was typing away on a laptop, two tables from where we were sitting. And, and he must have heard or overheard something we said and, and when he turned and saw, he looked at me real close, and he saw my shirt. And right at that moment, 
Melissa made it a point to reach over and touch the, the swastika on the cross on my chest, and the Jew started looking really nervous and looking around, and, and um, he, he abruptly packed his things and left. I thought that was funny. But what I was disappointed with was that we were at this um, kind of like a honky-tonk place on Sunday afternoon. It, it was, um, they had like a band playing Southern rock and mixed in with some country pop and Stevie Nicks and things like that. They even played um, Delta Dawn, please. And, and some of the music was good anyway. This place is called Stands, and it's in Goodland, Florida. And, and it's like a real down-home redneck town. You, you would, um, most people that listen to Krista Genninger, I'm sure, wouldn't mind being in this town. And, and um, there must have been a thousand people there. And, and we walked around, and most of the people were drinking beer and acting like teenagers, bimbos dancing and, and stuff like that. Melissa overheard, well, we were standing on this, like, balcony overlooking the place, having a beer. Melissa overheard a man maybe about my age, and, and telling his wife something like, look at him, he's got a swastika wrapped around a cross on his shirt. And Melissa heard that, and she motioned to me, and, and she pointed at this woman, and not a few seconds later, the, the woman turned around and, and looked at me, and when she saw me, she, she made like she was looking beyond me. It was pretty funny. It was pretty sad because they... Um, we hung out there purposely for 10 or 15 minutes because they noticed my shirt, and, and they never cared to um, strike a conversation up, that they never would turn to make eye contact at us after that. It's um, that they probably cared more about their beer, or, or maybe they were intimidated or something. I don't know. They look like a good, typical redneck couple. That was disappointing. Martin had um, asked me to attend a Bible study with him. Last Wednesday, at the First Baptist Church of Naples. So he and I attended this Bible study. And, and apparently, long ago, Martin had attended that church for a while. And he thought it would be interesting if I could go with him to attend such a Bible study. So I went. I thought it was useful since I have um, never in my life attended any Protestant church services until very recently when, back in March, Melissa and I had attended a service at a non-denominational lighthouse church, it's called. It's, it's an aspiring megachurch. They want to be a megachurch. They're not quite there yet in Panama City Beach. I plan on attending two or even maybe three more such services this year as we get an opportunity to do so. It's certainly not that we are converting. No, no, no. We're not becoming churchgoers. Melissa does not look forward to being dragged off to a Janeo Christ-hard church, and that's basically, um, they're not Christian at all. Rather, I have wanted and, and have even needed to become acquainted with these things because I am planning, and, and I'm even halfway through an article that I started last year, I'm planning 
possibly even a couple of articles relating to subjects concerning mainstream churches. So it was good for me to see firsthand one of their Bible studies. And observing that event was certainly quite insightful. And, and I'm doing this, I went to um, this lighthouse church, and, and last year when I started writing an article I'm working on, I... I, I um, did the virtual church thing and watched a service for a particular church in Virginia online. And I did that because I want to understand better the, the psychology of what binds people to these churches. And, and there are some, um, some pretty strong psychological gimmicks which are being played in these churches. Well, we walked into this Bible study a few minutes late. Since we had engaged in several other activities that day, we were actually um, driving from a museum up in Fort Myers, and, and we had a longer-than-expected drive. Of course, I was wearing a Christianity T-shirt, the one that has that um, crostica, we call it, the crostica design on it. That, that's the cross in the circles with the swastika drawn rather discreetly in the center of it. I was never asked about that shirt while we were there. This, the Bible study was held in a large auditorium, and the first 30 minutes were consumed by a presentation, sort of a sermon, which was supposed to be on Jude, verses 14 and 15. And when we walked in, and, and this um, alleged pastor was speaking on these verses, the words to those verses, Jude 14 and 15, were displayed on a large monitor mounted over a stage where the speaker was at a podium. And, and this First Baptist Church of Naples, it is another one of these mega churches. And this wasn't even the main auditorium. Martin had taken me to see the main auditorium where they had their main services, and, and it's like, wow. It, it's like a movie production projector facility all in one. That They've got all kinds of big um, fancy cameras all over the place, um, movie cameras, I guess. They're, they're the, the, the kind you'd see in a Hollywood set. They have a projection room with soundboards and light boards. It, it looked like Madison Square Garden before a Led Zeppelin concert. That they must have had several thousand seats in this place. It was pretty big. The, um, the Bible study wasn't in that room. It was in a separate room that was also pretty big. The words to um, June 14 and 15 but which were on a monitor up over the stage. We're going to read them. Jude 14, and, and it says, And to these also Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones. This is the New English version, and I'm quoting this version because that's the version that seemed to predominate this Baptist church. It's not a King James Version Baptist Church, or at least it's not a King James only church. To execute, behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all 
the ungodly, of all their works of ungodliness which they have ungodly wrought, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So these are supposed to these words are supposed to be the topic of the Bible study that evening. However, nothing the speaker said had anything to do with these words from Jude. Rather, he had gone over to Hebrews chapter 11, where Paul had written that by faith Enoch was translated, and he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Then the speaker gave a description of the account of Enoch in Genesis, and he spent most of the rest of his time conjecturing how Enoch was translated, and then imagining how he himself, along with those who he imagined would be found worthy in his audience, may also be translated. The sermon said nothing of what Jude had said that Enoch prophesied. The sermon said nothing about the Christian responsibilities which are suggested by that prophecy. The sermon said nothing about the context in which Jude had repeated the prophecy. The prophecy is not found in the book of Genesis or anywhere else in the standard Bibles, but nobody seemed to care about that either. Jude's quoting Enoch. Where's that in the Bible? Well, of course it's not in the Bible. They didn't even go there, though they pretended to be discussing these passages. The sermon was only designed to make the listeners, the people at the Bible study, think about themselves and to make them feel good by compelling them to place themselves into some sort of fantasy. The fantasy itself was evidently related to some sort of rapture doctrine. Oh, how are you going to be translated into the kingdom of heaven? Imagine you walking with God and taking one step here on earth, and the next step you take, you're in the kingdom of heaven. And that's the way this pastor, alleged pastor, had termed this. So the fantasy itself was evidently related to some sort of rapture doctrine, and it was exacerbated by the speakers repeating that Enoch had pleased God, for which reason he was translated. But it never provided any substance as to how Enoch may have pleased God. The pastor wants you to imagine how you can please God, ostensibly by going to Africa and bringing some little nigger home, I'm sure. While I did not ask if that particular church believed in rapture doctrine, I knew nothing about their doctrines walking in there. Personally, I don't, and admittedly, I don't know the difference between a Baptist, a Methodist, a Lutheran. I couldn't tell a Presbyterian if I fell over one. I don't know. I know what the, the names mean, Presbyterian, um, Baptist, of course, but I don't know the differences in the peculiar doctrines between those 
different denominations. So I didn't ask if that particular church believed in a rapture doctrine, but it is evident from their own statement of beliefs, which they have on their website, that they do believe in a rapture. And from the words of this pastor, perhaps they don't believe in a rapture in the way it is usually depicted, but they do believe in some sort of rapture. Aside from a stage, the auditorium had perhaps three dozen, maybe even 40, large round conference tables, and around each of those tables were perhaps eight or ten seats. They were not all filled, but the hall was full enough so that there were easily a couple of hundred men in attendance. At the same time, there was a separate Bible study for women, which was being held in another part of this rather huge complex. Before we had entered this um, auditorium, we noticed a list of names with numbers next to them on a table at the entrance to the auditorium. And when we entered and saw the numbered tables, each of these tables having a number on it, it was determined, we figured out, that each of those names represented a church elder. And each church elder had his own assigned table. So that people attending the Bible study were more or less free to choose the table where they wanted to sit, and, and certainly diverse attendants were more or less, um, must have had their favorites from among the church elders. So they'd go sit at the same table where their buddy was or where their favorite was. So the list at the door would make them easy to find. This is um, amazing the way these Bible studies basically uh, break down the group and compartmentalize everything, and, and um, these church elders sit at each table in the Bible study, and they're able to control the dialogue. And, and if you see what's going on, you'll understand that nothing can be said which really upsets the entire group or, or makes everybody think, because anybody speaking can only reach eight to ten people at any given time, and his comments would be moderated by the church elder at that particular table. So there's a great degree of control in, in these Bible studies that's not even, that, that wouldn't even be noticed by the average participants. So, so this church in its Bible study maintains a great degree of control over its congregation. So Martin and I chose a table rather randomly, and the only really deciding factor was that all of the other men at the table were apparently white. We wouldn't sit at a table with a, a nigger or, or a squat monster, that's for sure. And, and since perhaps 85 to 90% of the attendants were white, it wasn't really hard to find a table that met that simple criteria. As a digression, Martin had noticed, and, and his observation was correct, that practically all of the non-white men in attendance in this Bible study were much younger than most of the whites who were there. Most of the white men there were, were, were in their 60s, late 60s, 70s, retired. There were a few younger white men, but... Most of the minorities, most of the non-whites that were there, were 
in, in their late 20s, early 30s. So while this, um, while this First Baptist Church in Naples looks like a, a majority white church today, it's not going to last that way for many years into the future. And that's clear in the demographics of the crowd. So we sat at the table of probably six other men, most of whom were in their 70s, which was moderated by a church elder named Irv. And Irv was a rather friendly and affable guy. Aside from Martin, who's a few years younger than me, there was only one other man who, from my estimation, was younger than myself, and his name was Everett. Irv had started off this little Bible study. Now, now this is after a 30-minute sermon from this pastor. Irv started off with a few words concerning things which had been said the previous week. And then he asked Martin and I whether it was our first time there and why we were there, why we chose to come. So Martin said a few words about having attended this Bible study years before and, and still being curious, while I stated rather bluntly that I would not belong to any organized church, but only wanted to observe their Bible study out of my own curiosity. So with that, I didn't really manage to arouse any suspicion. I, I said my words. I spoke kindly. So Irv went on by talking for a couple of minutes about the sermon and asking each of us our impression. So to my surprise, I got to speak first. Not wanting to um, alienate anyone by straying from the topic, I did not really have an opportunity to talk about Christian identity. Although I did try to frame my words, certain phrases, so as to invite an inquiry, I didn't get an inquiry. However, I did have the opportunity to quote those verses in Jude that should have been the substance of the sermon and to explain that since Christ was returning to punish the ungodly for all their ungodly deeds, which they had ungodly committed, that such an expectation required Christians to keep God's law so that they would not be counted among those ungodly sinners, because the ungodly are those who commit not those who don't believe Jesus, the ungodly are those who commit ungodly deeds. Doing this, explaining this, among other scriptures, I had cited things such as Paul's insistence that Christians establish the law and his admonitions to obedience in Christ from Romans chapters 3 and 15, as well as the admonition of Christ that if you love me, Keep my commandments, which every Christian should recognize from the gospel. There were other scriptures that I mentioned. And with this, I had spoken for several minutes, and certainly longer than any of the men at the table had expected. When I was done, I received no response. I only got some 
blank stares. And then, after a moment, Irv simply moved on to the next man and around the table. So all of my remarks were basically just bounced off the faces of these people. That's the impression I received. Irv moved around to the table, moved around the table to, to, to the next man successively, and each of them said something. But there was no further discussion about the original passages in question. During the course of the next few exchanges, a few men had stressed the importance of going to a church, and, and I believe that I was the target of those remarks since I had said that I would not attend an organized church. I said that right up front. So a few men had stressed the importance of going to a church such as theirs in order to have fellowship with God. Of course, that was indeed a part of the actual substance of the sermon that evening. So their doctrine locks you into their church, even if it had little to do, it really had nothing to do with the original Bible verses which had been cited from Jude. So when I had gotten another opportunity to speak, I once again cited the words of Christ, where he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then I went to John chapter 14, where he said, if a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Obviously, you don't have to go to a church or to some Baptist-ass clown Bible study to, to have fellowship with God. Christ tells you right there how you have fellowship with God. So doing this, I had also cited the passage in Matthew, where Christ had stated that for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And expounding on this last passage... I explained how the Greek word for church actually referred to those who were called out from among the people of God in the world. That's one of those passages where I tried to make people think and ask me about that, but they didn't do that. And, and where in the book of Acts, and, and that's actually in chapters 5 and 8, and in Paul's epistles, which is in 1 Corinthians 14.23, those people, the people of God in the world, were referred to as the church at any given time, whether or not they were gathered in any particular place. I also mentioned that at those early times, there were no official so-called church organizations, and I stressed the fact that wherever obedient Christians were gathered, Christ had promised to be there with them. So upon my saying these things, Everett, the only gentleman there who is younger than I, aside from Martin, Everett made a lengthy response. Everett was a man who, from his previous conversation, was evidently some sort of military officer 
he was rather clean-cut, he was well-spoken, and he was a well-dressed man. He was at least a few years younger than me, perhaps about 45. Everett's general demeanor seemed to be very naturally quiet. He seemed like a nice guy. But when I commented on this, this fellowship with God thing and on what I thought the church was from Scripture, with supporting Scriptures, Everett was visibly irritated. So he began a dissertation which asserted that nobody could know anything about Scripture unless he came to learn it from an organization of men who were formally educated in the Scripture. That's what he said. He claimed that it didn't matter how much one studied the Bible, but only that one learned from pastors who were experienced, who alone could reveal the many secrets of the Scripture. That's what he said. Now, I'm paraphrasing Everett's words, of course, and it would have been better. I wish I could have recorded it. I could have, but I didn't. <laughs> Excuse me. But Everett certainly did exhibit these attitudes at length in his perhaps three or four minute speech. And towards the end, Everett looked at me and said something to the effect that a church neophyte should not be allowed to make his own doctrines. I guess he was taking a stab at me because I didn't ever go to church, so what could I know about the Bible, right? With this, I already had an answer for Everett formulated in my mind, but I never had the opportunity to present it because Irv, the moderator, right, the church elder, who was becoming visibly uncomfortable with any real discussion of Scripture, Irv ended the conversation as Everett finished speaking, and Irv was looking at me, and he knew I was about to pounce, and, and I didn't get the chance to. But the original 90 minutes were rather conveniently coming to their completion, so I never, and I, I never answered Everett, but we did part um, amicably. I made sure of that. Writing this this morning, I went back to examine the church's statement of beliefs, which is on their website. That statement of beliefs say nothing about God's law. They say nothing about the commandments of Christ. However, they do say that all Christians must, 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 they say, must experience worship, nurture, and service in a local church. Now, reading that, I realized why Everett had been so upset with my definition of what a church actually is. And with my perception, right from John chapter 14, of how to have fellowship with God. Keep his law. It's that damn simple. Keep his law, and we have fellowship with God. That's the words of Christ. But that really upset Everett. Now I also realize why nobody responded to what I had said about the need to keep God's law. My position on these things 
was in contradiction to their established beliefs, regardless of whether it was supported by Scripture. The Scripture doesn't mean anything if it conflicts with their established doctrines. That's a damn shame. That is a shame. I pray that Everett misses the real rapture when the tares are all gathered and burned in the fire so that he may see the true church of God. At that point, I imagine that somebody will have to explain to Everett what happened to his niggers. That was my experience with my first Bible study. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. With that, we will commence with the epistles of Paul. 2 Corinthians, part 8. This is subtitled Communion, Not Tithes. After expounding at great length upon the affliction and the encouragement which the children of Israel have in the gospel of reconciliation to Yahweh their God, as well as expounding upon Yahweh's plan of mercy for Israel in that reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul illustrated, come out from among them, Paul illustrated the responsibility that the children of Israel have as recipients of that gospel and that mercy. That responsibility requires the children of Israel to separate themselves from all of the sinners and from all of the unclean of the other races. And then Yahweh their God shall receive them and dwell with them. And those things are indeed a matter of keeping the law. Christ says in John 14, keep my commandments and I and my Father will love you and dwell with you. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul had turned to express his gratitude that the Corinthians, being grieved by Paul's letters, had chosen to repent from the problems which Paul had addressed in his first epistle to them. And Paul expressed the joy which Titus had transmitted to him on account of their repentance and their choosing to abide in Christ. Here in this eighth chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul turns to the more worldly tasks related to the fulfillment of his ministry, which in this case includes the collections he had been taking on behalf of the poor saints in Jerusalem. Upon the completion of the initial year and a half which he had spent in Corinth, Paul had a brief sojourn in Ephesus. Then upon his departure from there, after promising the Ephesians that he would soon return to them, if indeed Yahweh had desired it, we then see Luke record in Acts chapter 18 from verse 22, and coming back into Caesarea, going up and greeting the assembly, 
he went down into Antioch, and spending some time, he departed, passing through successively the land of Galatia and Phrygia, confirming all of the students. So Paul leaves Corinth after a year and a half, goes sails to Ephesus briefly, and then sails to Caesarea in Judea, and goes up to Antioch, and that's where he meets the apostles, as he explains in Galatians chapter 2. And then he goes by foot from Antioch through Galatia, through Phrygia, which is in the center of modern Turkey, and, and back to Ephesus, where he remained for three years. Upon the completion of the initial year and a half, which he had spent in Corinth, Paul had a brief sojourn in Ephesus. I'm sorry, I'm rereading the same paragraph, right? After the three years, or, or, or I'm sorry, after the year and a half in Corinth, going to Antioch, Paul had somewhere in the interim wrote the Galatians. Writing to the Galatians shortly after seeing the apostles in Antioch, in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, Paul had given an account of his visit with those apostles, where, among other things, he explained concerning this meeting and knowing the favor being given to me, Jacob, Cephas, and John, Cephas being the Hebrew form of Petros, which was the um, the name, the nickname which Joshua gave to Simon Peter, right? Jacob, Cephas, and John, those reputed to be pillars, had given right hands of fellowship to me and to Barnabas, that we are for the nations and they for the circumcised, only that we should remember the poor the same thing which I had then been anxious to do. So from this time, from this visit in, in Antioch, it is evident in both the records of the book of Acts and in several of his other epistles that Paul had conducted collections for the poor in Jerusalem throughout the assemblies of Christians in the areas where he ministered. Ostensibly, Paul had written another later epistle to the Galatians, which had contained instructions for them in regard to those same collections. As Paul had said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that concerning the collection for the saints, he had given order to the churches of Galatia. There in that chapter, it also seems <clears throat> that the Christians at Corinth were already familiar with the instructions that Paul had transmitted to the Galatians in this regard. Those instructions, of course, are now lost. We do not have a record of them except for 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Perhaps about six months after Paul wrote this epistle, this second epistle to the Corinthians, he was arrested in Jerusalem, making a defense before the Roman governor Felix, as Luke records in Acts chapter 24, 
Paul had said, at verse 17, Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Those offerings which he had brought to Judea must have also included the same collections for the saints, which Paul is discussing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and which he had previously mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So with that, we will commence with 2 Corinthians chapter 8. From verse 1, Paul says, Now we make known to you, brethren, the favor of Yahweh, which has been given in the assemblies of Macedonia. The assemblies of Macedonia would have included, but were not limited to, those of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Beroia, the Berians of Acts chapter 19, the Thessalonians of the epistles to the Thessalonians, and the Philippians to the in, of the epistles to the Philippians, right? All of these are mentioned in Acts chapters 16 and 17. In chapter 7 of this epistle, I'm sorry, not chapter 19. The Beroians are in chapter 17. My, my mistake. In chapter 7 of this epistle, Paul had previously explained that he had many troubles and challenges during his latest journey through Macedonia. Luke only briefly mentioned this in Acts chapter 20, where he had written, and when he had gone over those parts, referring to Macedonia, and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece and there abode three months. However, upon examining the other epistles which Paul had written during this same time in his ministry, which are Titus and 1 Timothy, we found that in 1 Timothy, Paul had mentioned two men, Humenius and Alexandros, concerning whom he said that he had surrendered to the adversary in order that they would be disciplined not to blaspheme. That same epistle informs us that Paul had only recently left Timothy in Ephesus before he had written to him. And it is obvious that he had written the letter to him before seeing him in Nicopolis the following winter, where this epistle was written, and from the beginning of this second epistle to the Corinthians, we see that Timothy was with Paul. So 1 Timothy was written between the time Paul left Ephesus, and he wrote Timothy saying he left him in, in Ephesus, and the time, maybe eight months later, because Paul left Ephesus no later than the Pentecost, maybe eight months later, he wrote this epistle, Timothy was with him. Therefore, it can be ascertained that the troubles with Humenius and Alexandros were certainly related to the trials which Paul had faced when he went to Macedonia. Here, in spite of those troubles whereby Paul had given the Macedonians much exhortation, as Luke called it, 
we see Paul extol the Macedonians to the favor of Yahweh God with which they had been blessed. It seems that among the Macedonians were found the most generous of the Christian assemblies of Paul's time. For instance, in the fourth chapter of his epistle to the Philippians, who were one of the assemblies in Macedonia, Paul commends them for their having provided for him, where he says in verse 15, but you Philippians also know that in the beginning of the good message, meaning when Paul first started preaching the gospel in Europe, when I had come out from Macedonia, not one assembly had shared with me one thought of giving and receiving except you only. In other words, of all the assemblies Paul founded in Macedonia, only the Philippians were actually supporting Paul in his ministry. Then again, in chapter 11 of this epistle to the Corinthians, Paul reproaches the Corinthians as he once again commends the Macedonians, where he says in verse 8, I have deprived other assemblies, taking provisions for your service, and being present with you and wanting, meaning he had been in need, I had burdened no one. Indeed, my need had been filled by the brethren who came from Macedonia. And in everything I have kept and will keep myself unburdensome to you. By having received his support from the Macedonians, while he had been ministering to the Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians that he had deprived other assemblies so that he may serve them. In ancient Greece, and this is common, even teachers of pagan philosophies were generally supported by those whom they taught, as well as by wealthy patrons. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, speaking of the Macedonians, Paul says, because with quite a test of tribulation, the abundance of their joy and contrary to their copious poverty, they have advantage in the riches of their sincerity. The Macedonians were not only generous towards Paul, but they were sincerely generous. Even the enemies of our God have some capacity for generosity. But Many are generous for worldly reasons, seeking worldly acknowledgments and worldly rewards. Therefore, their generosity is not sincere. Christ himself advises in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 4, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. However, we must take issue with the King James and other versions here in this passage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, where they have liberality rather than sincerity. And this is a blatantly dishonest translation 
by every version that has liberality in 2 Corinthians 8.2. The Greek word, which we have translated as sincerity here, is aplotes. Haplotes, Strong's number 572, according to Liddell and Scott, is singleness, simplicity, frankness. And it comes from the word haploas. Haploas, Strong's number 573, which according to the same source means single, simple, natural, plain sincere or frank, among other things. The word haploas appears in Matthew 6.22 and in Luke 11.34. And in each place, the King James Version has single. That version has the words of Christ recorded at Luke 11.34 to read, The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, meaning when one looks upon things with frankness and sincerity, thy whole body is also full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. The word haplotes also appears in Romans 12.8, where the King James Version has simplicity. Here they have liberality. In Ephesians 6.5, in Colossians 3.22, in those two places the King James Version has singleness. The King James Version also translates this word haplotes as simplicity, where it appears in 2 Corinthians 11.3, this very epistle where Paul made a reference to the simplicity that is in Christ. And in the Christogenia New Testament, it is sincerity in that passage. From these passages that I've just cited, it can be told that the King James translators understood the word haplotes to mean sincerity or simplicity or something similar. Yet, where the same word appears here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, at verses 11 and 13, the subject of the discussion is money. And in those places, the King James Version translates this same word that means simplicity. I'm sorry, simplicity or sincerity. The King James Version translates the same word as liberality, as bountifulness or in 2 Corinthians 9.13, simply as liberal, in the meaning of liberality. But the word itself does not bear any such meanings. Imagine that. It has to do with money. So all of a sudden it means bountifulness. What a fraud. 17th century hucksters, those King James translators. One cannot imagine that such a translation coming from a government-sponsored denominational organization had been perpetrated without a cause. In other words, it must be a conspiracy.
And the King James Version of the Bible was indeed made. It was created by a government-sponsored denominational organization. The translations amount to theft. Here in the Christianian New Testament, on these three occasions, the word is translated as sincerity. A distinction must be maintained between giving with sincerity, like the woman with the two mites in the temple. And Christ said that her gift was much greater than all of those Pharisees and other hypocrites who had lots of money and gave much greater amounts to the temple. A distinction must be maintained between giving with sincerity and giving liberally or bountifully, as the government-mandated Anglican Church, which is responsible for the King James translation, would have its supporters believe, and which many other versions have since followed. No doubt. The translation, liberality, or in 2 Corinthians 9, 11, and 13, bountifulness, liberal, those translations are patently dishonest. Paul goes on to say in verse 3, because by ability, I attest even beyond ability. They are volunteers, asking of, asking of us with much exhortation the favor and the fellowship of the service of that which is for the saints. In other words, the Macedonians heard that Paul was taking a collection, and in their own poverty, they had given to the poor in Jerusalem beyond what they could ever have been expected. While Paul of Tarsus both deserved and anticipated support from the people to whom he had taught the gospel of Christ, something, as we noted, which was even customary in the pagan philosophies of the time. Paul did not demand compulsory tithes from Christian assemblies. Anybody who says so is a liar. As we have already cited from chapter 11 of this very epistle, to the Corinthians. Paul informed the Corinthians that although he was being supported by the Macedonians who were in poverty, he purposely kept himself from burdening the assembly in Corinth. He never imposed a tithe. He never asked the Corinthians for anything. That's because, ostensibly, he wanted to be free of them so that he could never be accused by them that he was teaching to tickle their ears, or for any other reason. So here, Paul commends the Macedonians for their voluntary and sincere contributions, which he attests were beyond what could have ever been expected. While he only asks the Corinthians to contribute to the cause of the poor in Jerusalem, while it is an indirect lesson, it serves to demonstrate that Paul expected Christians to be supportive in giving, but that he did not require mandatory tithes. 
Paul explained the same thing in another manner in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he said from verse 11, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not rather we? In other words, if others can do this and collect your carnal things, why shouldn't we? Because the apostles were greater than the others. Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about the holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so, the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things, meaning Paul did not require tithes of the Corinthians. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make void my glorying. Paul accepted the voluntary support of the assemblies. But if Paul demanded tithes of his students, his glorying would be made void. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Christians should give and give with sincerity, not expecting worldly rewards, even if that is the promise of Christ in Matthew chapter 6, and certainly not expecting the, the worldly honor of men. However, Christian giving is voluntary, and it should never be placed under a burden of guilt. Never. Therefore, Paul had also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in reference to his preaching the gospel, what then is my reward? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Preparing for this very presentation, one of my own patrons had sent me a link to a program on tithing, which was recently done by a pair of other so-called Christian identity pastors who abused the account of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5 in order to burden their listeners with guilt in relation to tithes. If you don't give me a tithe, God's going to strike you down like he did Ananias and Sapphira. Well, that's simply bullshit. It's not true. That is not Christian, and it is not the example set for us by the apostles. The context of the story of Ananias and Sapphira it's found in Acts chapter 4. 
where it says of the apostolic Christian community in verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Annas and Sapphira joined such a community, and when they joined that community, they were therefore expected, like everybody else did, to turn their property over to the community. To join the community, they must have agreed to turn all of their property over to the community. That is what we see in Acts 4.32. Anna, Ananias, and Sapphira were punished when they withheld a portion for themselves because they attempted to deceive God while they had agreed to turn it over to the apostles upon joining the community. That's why they were punished. The clowns, who are now using Acts chapter 5 out of context, to lay burdens of guilt upon identity Christians in relation to tithing, those clowns should be liable to the same penalty because they are using the scripture as a false witness for their own enrichment. They are manifestly frauds. That's a digression that I felt I had to make. I won't, um, I won't say um, who I'm referring to, except that one of them is a long-time so-called Christian identity pastor, and the other one is really a troll fronting himself off as a pastor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And not exactly as we had expected, speaking about the Macedonians. Rather, they had given of themselves first to the prince and to us through the will of Yahweh, for which to summon Titus to us in order that, just as he had begun before, in that manner, then would he accomplish this favor with you also. Paul must have resolved the problems of the assemblies in Macedonia, which he described here in chapter 7 of this epistle, where he wrote, For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. However, precisely what Paul is referring to here, where he says of them that they had given themselves first to the prince, is beyond our reach because we have no records of exactly what had transpired there. So we can only say that perhaps Paul refers to the Macedonians having resolved their issues and having remained faithful to the gospel in Christ. In the opening verses of the surviving epistle of Paul to Titus, we see the statement, For this cause I left thee in creed, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. 
If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. However, while Paul wrote reminding Titus of his purpose in Crete, that does not mean that Titus was still in Crete when he received that letter. Rather, Paul reveals here in chapter 7 of this epistle to the Corinthians that Titus had come to Nicopolis from Corinth, where he wrote that upon Titus's having come to him in Nicopolis, nevertheless God, that comforts those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind towards me, so that I rejoice the more. And then, a little later in that chapter, Paul said, Therefore we were comforted in your comfort, yeah, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. Ostensibly, Titus is the Titius Eustace, as he is in the Christogonian New Testament, although some manuscripts have Titus Eustace at Acts chapter 18, verse 7, whom Paul had met in the assembly of the Judeans in Corinth, and who stayed with Paul after Paul had separated those following Christ from the Judeans in Corinth, who had rejected Christ. It is further evident that Titus must have accompanied Paul to Antioch after Paul had left Corinth and traveled to Antioch to see the apostles. This is recorded, the trip that Paul made is recorded as we have already cited in Acts chapter 18, in verses 18 through 23. And this is demonstrated to be true since when Paul had written his epistle to the Galatians, he had spoken of Titus's presence at his meeting with the apostles in Galatians chapter 2, where he wrote in verse 3, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. We will discuss all of this at greater length, Yahweh willing, later this summer when we present our commentary on the epistle to the Galatians. With this, we also have additional proof which establishes our chronology of the writing of the epistle to the Galatians, that it was written, as Paul is in Antioch, and then he writes to Galatians in advance of his visit there. So Paul is in Antioch, and he travels on foot through Galatia and Phrygia as far as Ephesus, where his arrival is recorded by Luke at the beginning of Acts chapter 19. Titus must have accompanied Paul on that journey as well. And then, sometime during his three years in Ephesus, Paul, along with Titus, must have made a trip to Crete 
which is not recorded by Luke. Crete being very close to Ephesus. And during that time, Paul left Titus in Crete. Leaving Ephesus sometime later, Paul had hoped to find Titus in the Troad, but Titus was not there, and Paul moved on to Macedonia and through to Nicopolis, writing his letter to Titus in the interim. From this passage, we see that Paul had summoned Titus to us, meaning to himself and to Timothy, something which we see in the final chapter of the epistle to Titus. So that is what Paul is making a reference to here. But only from this epistle do we learn that Titus is in Corinth when that happened, since Corinth is not mentioned in the epistle to Titus. Perhaps, and this is slightly conjectural, perhaps Paul, writing to Titus while he was still in Corinth, had repeated the instructions by which Titus had organized the Christian assemblies in Creed, so that Titus would have an understanding to make certain that the Christian assemblies in Corinth were organized in that same manner. The need for such organization is evident in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, where we see in the first chapters that they had taken to sectarianism, and in chapter 6, that they could not even make decisions or appoint judges from among themselves to settle matters of difference among themselves. Titus would then bring this epistle to Corinthians to the Corinthians in advance of Paul's final visit there. Evidently, during that time, Titus would also see that the Corinthians had prepared whatever offerings they may have set aside for the poor of the saints in Jerusalem. We feel a need to explain all of these things in detail, and sometimes we repeat ourselves as these topics come up from chapter to chapter, because the usual perspectives of these things, which are found in most commentaries and articles, are simplistic and crude, and are very often they are very inaccurate. The common perception in the Judeo-Christian commentaries is that Titus lived out his life as the Bishop of Crete, and that is certainly not true. Rather, Titus had organized assemblies and had overseen the selection of bishops in Crete, and then Titus moved on to other places. Where from Paul's letters, we see him with Paul in Antioch, in Galatia, in Phrygia, and in Ephesus. And then, later on, by himself, not only in Crete, but also in the Troad, where Paul expected to find him, and in Corinth, where Paul did find him, summoned him to Nicopolis, and sent him back to Corinth. All of this is long after Titus had evidently finished his work in Crete. Verse 7, But just as in everything you have advantage, in faith, and in word, and in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in that love from us and you, 
see also in this favor you would have the advantage. And Paul is commending the, the, the Corinthians once again for their abiding in Christ in the face of all the troubles that they had had earlier, which are illustrated in his first epistle to the Corinthians. Paul here is encouraging, but he is not demanding that the Corinthians be generous in their contributions to the poor in Jerusalem. Paul calls their contributing a favor. Where the King James and other versions translate the word carries, Strong's number 5485, as grace. Yet, as and Scott explain in the Greek-English lexicon, the word charis means a favor either done or returned, a grace or favor felt in regards to some action on the part of the doer of an act that could be kindness or goodwill on the part of the receiver of an act that could be thankfulness or gratitude. That's why the word charis is never translated as grace in the Christianian New Testament. It's an oversimplification of the meaning of the word. Among other similar things, the corresponding word karizomahi, which is the verb, is to offer willingly, to give cheerfully, or to give freely, according to Liddell and Scott. And that is the meaning of God's grace for Israel, to forgive their sins freely, to bestow favors on them cheerfully, or willingly, or freely. Here in Paul's exhortation, we see that all of these things are expected in Christian communion. Gratitude on the part of the receiver, kindness and goodwill on the part of the giver. Paul says in verse 8, I do not speak in the way of a command, but through the diligence of others and testing the legitimacy of your love. True Christian love is evident, becomes evident in one's Christian communion. As Christ gave his life for his brethren, Christians are to follow him and do the same, as he admonishes, if you love me, take up your cross and follow me. That does not necessarily mean dying, for one's brethren, although at times that may be necessary, but rather it means dedicating one's life for one's brethren, and that principle is the foundation for true Christian communion. From Mark chapter 10, for verse 17, and when it was gone forth into the way, when Christ had hit the road, right? There came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why do you call me good? 
There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Master, all of these things I have observed for my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now you know the favor of our prince, Joshua Christ, that for the sake of you, he, being wealthy, had been in need, and in order that in that need you would be enriched. As it says in Isaiah chapter 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Yahshua Christ, according to the prophets of Yahweh God, was God incarnate, being born into poverty and in need. Paul says that he was indeed wealthy, and nevertheless put himself in need for the sake of the children of Israel. In this manner, Christians should share their own wealth for the good of their brethren, as Christ our God is also our model of conduct. Verse 10. And in this, I give an opinion. This to you is beneficial. Whoever not only would do, but also to be willing had begun before from last year. Paul gives an opinion. He is not using scripture in order to compel anything from the Corinthians. Paul is not abusing the account of Hananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, like certain frauds do pretending to be Christian identity pastors. But he also informs them that they will have the greater favor in Christ if they comply willingly, because true Christian communion is volunteerism. As we had exhibited when we had presented 2 Corinthians chapter 7 at verse 5 of that chapter, this second epistle to the Corinthians must have been written at least seven or eight months after the letter which we now know as Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. In that first epistle, Paul mentioned that he had hoped to remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. So it must have been written before Pentecost of 56 AD. 
Now he is writing this epistle during the winter at Nicopolis. So it must be either January or February of 57 AD. Therefore, the phrase from last year must be a reference to the time of Paul's prior instructions to the Corinthians concerning the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, which were also mentioned in the closing portion of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16 of that epistle. So we see that from his initial instructions until this time, the Corinthians did indeed have a year to prepare their offering. Those who were willing to do so had started at that time when they first received the request from Paul. Verse 11. But now also accomplish the doing so that just as there is the willingness, I'm sorry, the readiness to be willing, so also from that have the completion. If that readiness is set forth according to whatever one would have is acceptable, not according to what to that which one does not have. Under the Old Covenant, tithes were mandatory because the Levites who received them had no land. And in that manner, the Levites were sustained. All of the other tribes of Israel received their land freely. They were given it and could expect to be sustained by their land. But the Levites were the administrators of the kingdom, and therefore it was to be expected that they would be maintained by the kingdom in the manner of mandatory tithing. But that was the old kingdom. Tithing is no longer mandatory. In the new covenant, communion is greater than tithes. But tithes are not a law. In fact, Paul had stated in his epistle to the Hebrews, and verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Then later, in that same chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, he also stated that for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Then further on he said, for there verily is a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw near unto God. However, Christian communion is greater than tithes. 
And Christians should give according to whatever they can spare, which is the example that Paul makes here. Paul does not demand tithes. And Paul made no demands at all of the Corinthians for his own ministry. Paul, was, Paul had only asked that the Corinthians be willing to do whatever they could and to put into execution what they had agreed to do willingly for the poor of the saints in Jerusalem. As it is recorded in Luke chapter 19, passing through Jericho, Joshua Christ had been accosted by a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And Luke wrote, Then entering in, he passed through Jericho. And behold, a man by name called Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. And he sought to see Joshua, who he is, and was not able because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. Yet running ahead to the front, he went up into a mulberry tree, that he may see him, since he was about to pass through there. And as he came by the place, Joshua, looking up, said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, you must come down. For today, it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Then hurrying, he came down and welcomed him, rejoicing. And all those seeing it murmured, saying, that with a sinful man he has entered into lodge. Then stopping, Zacchaeus said to the prince, Behold, half of my property, prince, I give to the poor. And if I have extorted anything of anyone, I return it fourfold. And Yahshua said unto him that today has preservation come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham. But a son of man has come to seek and to save that which has been lost. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. Not in order that there is relaxation for others and pressure for you, but from equality. At the present time, your abundance for their deficiency, in order that also their abundance would be for your deficiency, that in some way there would be equality, just as it is written, the great have not had excess, and the small have not been diminished. Here Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 16, from verse 18. And in order to understand what he was referring to, we shall read a greater portion of that passage, because the language of the King James Version is quite archaic in this instance. We will read from the New American Standard Bible, from verse 11. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, 
And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which Yahweh has given to me. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it, every man, as much as he should eat. You take an omer apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said unto them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. Those of the children of Israel, who did not attempt to save any excess food, put their faith in Yahweh their God that they would be provided for on the next day. So those who had a great ability to gather, to gather much, nevertheless relinquished what they did not need to those with poor ability who gathered little. This is not, in the New Testament, a law that Christians must follow, but rather it is an example for Christians to learn from. While Paul had illustrated that teachers of the gospel could expect to be provided for by Christian assemblies, Paul never demanded any tithes. Rather, when he did not receive enough for his provisions, he went to work to support himself, which he explained at length, using his own conduct as an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Furthermore, before his own interests, Paul had asked that the assemblies in Corinth contribute to the poor of their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. Therefore, Christians who have excess should also follow this example which Paul has said. Paul did not ask, however, that Christians give of their own sustenance. He only asked that they give of their excess at a level which they themselves were comfortable with giving. The equality Paul describes is not a communist utopia, but only that all Christians in their time of need should indeed have their basic needs fulfilled by the members of the greater body of Christ. We had earlier cited the account of the rich young man in Mark chapter 10, who being wealthy and desiring the kingdom of heaven had offered nothing except to keep the law. And he became grieved when Yahshua suggested that he give away everything. However, Zacchaeus, the wealthy old tax collector, had happily offered half of his riches, along with 
recompense for whatever he may have cheated others. And Yahshua had justified him for it. Zacchaeus was justified, even though Zacchaeus would remain wealthy compared to most men. But he would be less wealthy than he had once had at one time been. He only offered half of his wealth, and Christ justified him. But Zacchaeus offered it freely. The young man claimed to keep the law and offered nothing. Christ asked him to give away all of his wealth, and the man was grieved. Therefore, Christian communion is greater than tithes. But tithes are not demanded of Christians. Christianity is based on volunteerism. Christian communion is based on a love and willingness to help one's brethren along with a desire for the advancement of the kingdom of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Yahweh explains that he provides the children of Israel with wealth so that his covenant is established. Therefore, when one is blessed with wealth, it is for the benefit of the kingdom of God. Verse 11 states, Beware that thou not forget Yahweh thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I commanded thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget Yahweh thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, and there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy later end. And now say in thine heart, but power, my power, and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God. For it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. When Abraham prevailed against the king of Sodom, he voluntarily tied Melchizedek, who had blessed him. Christ now holds the priesthood of Melchizedek, and Christians should follow the example of Abraham. But Paul demanded no tithes. Verse 16. Now gratitude is to Yahweh, by whom that same diligence is being given in the heart of Titus on your behalf, seeing that the encouragement he indeed has received, now being more diligent, voluntarily he has gone out to you. 
The diligence Paul speaks of is Titus's diligence in organizing the task for which he was selected, which is the collection and maintenance of the contributions to the poor which Paul is requesting. Titus has not yet returned to Corinth, but will indeed deliver this letter. So Paul writes his Paul writes as if Titus is already there, because he will be there when the letter is read. The verse which follows makes this even further evident. And we have sent along with him that brother of whom there is approval in the good message throughout all of the assemblies, and not only, but our fellow traveler, a reference to the same brother, has also been hand-picked by the assemblies to be endued with this favor in which he would serve under us to the honor of the prince himself. And that word hand-picked signifies an election. And our eagerness is avoiding this, not a one would find fault with us in this strength which is serving under us. And by the phrase, this strength, Paul once again refers to the unnamed brother who had been chosen by the assemblies to represent them by bringing their gifts to Jerusalem. Paul evidently calls this man our fellow traveler because it is evident that this man was selected for the purpose of going to Jerusalem with him. Paul had instructed this earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where he had written in verse 3, and when I arrive, meaning when he gets to his planned but delayed visit to Corinth, and when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Here is evident that Titus must have brought this individual to Nicopolis when he went there to meet Paul, since Paul is writing as if the man is there with him. Now, many commentaries in preparing this program, I just had to check. Many commentaries attempt conjectures as to the identity of this man. And the majority of opinions seem to lean towards Luke, which is foolish, since Acts chapter 20 shows that Luke is in Philippi until Paul arrives in the Troad. Where Luke is with Paul, Luke writes in the first person plural, which is evident from Acts chapter 16. And in the first four verses of Acts chapter 20, where Luke describes Paul's journeys, this winter he writes in the third person singular, as was his custom where Luke was not with Paul, but was only recording the things which pertain to Paul. In verses 5 and 6 of Acts chapter 20, we see that Luke and others had sailed from Philippi to meet Paul in the Troad. Therefore, where Paul says that he has sent Titus to Corinth carrying this epistle and sent it along with Along with Titus sent the unnamed brother in question, it certainly cannot be a reference to Luke, who was in Philippi.
The pair, Titus and his unnamed brother, are mentioned again in this context later in his epistle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. From the instructions which Paul had given the Corinthians at 1 Corinthians 16.3, this unnamed brother must be someone from among the Christians at Corinth. The epistle to the Romans was written from the Troad after Paul departed from Corinth with these gifts in hand sometime around the end of March 57 AD, perhaps two months or so after this epistle had been written. From the rather incomplete list of those who were with Paul at this time, which are found in the final verses of the epistle to the Romans and in Luke's description of Paul's arrival in the Troad in Acts chapter 20, verses, verses 4 through 6, only one of the persons mentioned can be identified with Corinth, and that is Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, as he is called at Romans 16.23. Now, many commentators believe that Erastus was from Corinth. However, from the records of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, it is apparent that Erastus originally may have been from Ephesus rather than Corinth, although he is mentioned again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he is said to have gone to abide in Corinth. So if Erastus was from Corinth, he is very possibly the unnamed brother being discussed here, because he's the only Corinthian found with Paul after Paul departs from Corinth after his, during his final journey to Jerusalem. Verse 21, indeed, we have noble intentions, not only in the presence of the prince, but also in the presence of men. Now we have sent our brother with them, whom we have approved to be diligent in many things, and now much more diligent in the great confidence which is in you. Paul had insisted that the Corinthians choose one of their own to convey their gift to Jerusalem, as he had instructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Ostensibly, he did this so that his own noble intentions are manifest before them, that he was not intending to mistreat their charity and prove that by having them choose one of their own to convey it. The great confidence in the Corinthians was the confidence they had shown by choosing this particular individual to accompany Paul with their charity. So here, Paul is attesting that he and Timothy also approved of their choice. Of course, Timothy being the we in Paul's use of the pronoun throughout this epistle, since in the opening of the epistle, Paul gives himself and Timothy in the salutation. Whether concerning Titus, my partner, and a colleague to you, or our brethren to be ambassadors of the assemblies is an honor of the anointed. 
This concludes Paul's stated acceptance of the choice of the Corinthians in this particular brother, where he stresses the importance with which Christians should esteem the ministries or services that they chose to fulfill. Verse 24, Therefore, the proof of your love and of our boasting concerning you is being displayed to them in the presence of the assemblies. Some manuscripts read the end of verse 24 to read, you should display to them in the presence of the assemblies. Paul had spoken well of the Corinthians to the assembly in Macedonia, and the Corinthians, as Paul attests here, had not disappointed him. This concludes our presentation of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Tomorrow night, German Origins, Part 5. Sunday afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern. Christiania Europe with Sven Longshanks. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.